0: So in verses 6 and 7, let's look at the passage. Verses 6 and 7, Paul urges the Colossians to embrace their spiritual fullness in Christ. Now we've just sung it, right? Let me read it. So then, uh, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So four ways Paul says uh, he gives the Colossians four ways in which they can embrace their spiritual fullness in Christ. First, uh, they need to live with Christ Jesus as Lord. But because uh, in uh, being a Christian is not just about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, uh, but about living with Christ Jesus as Lord, right as Lord of every part of your life. Uh, there's a Dutch theologian, his name's Abraham Kuyper, and he once said uh, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's the extent of the lordship of Christ. It's everywhere. Right. So when you become a Christian, uh, you not only receive Christ Jesus as Lord, uh, but over time you embrace his lordship over every part of your life, and that is the path of greater spiritual fullness, Paul says. So let me ask, you, if you're here today and you're a Christian, which parts of your life are you struggling to surrender to Christ as Lord? Perhaps you're happy to listen to what Jesus has to say about caring for the poor or social justice or loving our neighbours, but you wrestle with what he has to say about sexuality or marriage. Perhaps you're happy to listen to what Jesus has to say about how you use your time or your talents, all across that. But when it comes to your treasure, well, not so much. Right? Jesus, uh, you say, this money is mine, but Jesus also says that money is mine. Maybe you're happy to listen to what Jesus has to say about prayer or the scriptures or certain aspects of morality, but not so much what he has to say about hypocrisy or self-righteousness or having a judgmental attitude. See, Christ, our Lord, gave himself for us on the cross. That ought to convince us that living with him as Lord is for our good. It's for our health, our growth, our spiritual fullness. We're not always convinced of that, but with our eyes fixed on the cross, we can surrender our lives increasingly to Christ as Lord, and that is the path, Paul says, to spiritual fullness. A Second, spiritual fullness is found in being built up in Christ. Look at the start of verse 7. Paul says uh, that in becoming Christians, it's like we've been rooted in Christ, planted in Christ, and i talked about that picture of the tree, uh, but now we've got to grow in Christ, be built up in Christ. Uh, so running with the whole plant metaphor, this is probably a call to bear Christian fruit, like character, like the, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul uh, talks about in Galatians chapter 5. A love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, uh, goodness, and self-control. Uh, so it's, it's not a bad thing to do a bit of an audit. Right? Uh, how are you going being, being built up in Christ. As you sink your roots more and more deeply into the Lord Jesus Christ, are you growing in Christ-like fruit, in love, in joy, in patience? Where perhaps do you need to grow? And third, we embrace our fullness in Christ by being strengthened in the faith. This isn't so much our kind of personal faith in God, but the objective truths of the Christian faith. This is a call to grow in our knowledge of the faith, in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how much you you feel that you know Christ now, you can always know him more. Uh, Sometimes uh, it is true that the the gospel is simple enough that a child can understand it. Uh, And some Christians I've met really uh, wear it as a badge of honour that they've got a childlike faith. Uh, And there's a certainly wonderful simplicity to that. It's a great thing. Uh, But there can also be an ungodliness in that, can't there? And ungodly contentment that I, that I refuse to stretch myself and grow in my knowledge of God because it's just too hard. Like, this is a call to be strengthened in the faith, to be strengthened and to go deeper in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and all he has done for us. And sometimes that is stretching. It's hard work. But let's not cop out with, oh, I've got a childlike faith. I'll leave that for the theologians. No, let, let's go deeper. Let's know our Lord more. Uh, so that really this is a holistic call in, in these verses, uh, a call uh, to grow in our knowledge of Christ, to grow in our character, Christ-like character, uh, and to grow in our Christ-like living. And, and as all of that happens, as, as we make any kind of progress in our Christian growth, uh, we know that all of that's a gift from God, uh, which is why the fourth thing is, is that we're overflowing with thanks. Well, we know it's not because of us, we're overflowing in thanks to God. So Paul urges the Colossians, he urges us uh, to embrace, to to explore the the sheer vastness of the fullness that we have in Christ. To not grow content uh, with with where our relationship with Christ is this day. Uh, But of course he also knows that there are these false teachers in Colossae. False teachers who are trying to distract the Colossians from their fullness in Christ. Uh, So in the rest of the chapter uh, he gives them four warnings. Right, four different aspects of the teaching of these false teachers uh, that he wants them to be alert to. So first, I yeah, have a look in verse 8. Uh, he says, beware of Gnosticism. Now, I don't want you to freak out. This is one of those opportunities to be strengthened in the faith, right? To, to grow in knowledge. I know that's a big word, Gnosticism, but hey, I'm looking at my daughter, five years old. She's learning lots of big words. If you're 25, you can learn another big word. It'll be okay. Right? So Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word for uh, gnosis, which means knowledge, knowledge, in particular perhaps a secret knowledge, a secret wisdom. So in verse 8, this is what Paul says, "...see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ." Now, let's be clear, Paul is not anti-philosophy as such. Right? The word philosophy just means love of wisdom. right? And Paul's all in favour of people learning to live wisely uh, in God's world. He prayed as much uh, back in chapter 1. Uh, but his problem with this philosophy is that it's, it's claiming to combine the, the hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ with this other wisdom, this secret wisdom, this gnosis that only the false teachers have, you see. And Paul says it's a wisdom that depends upon human tradition. What he means by that is that these false teachers are claiming that their wisdom is not like this newfangled Christianity. Their wisdom's an ancient wisdom. It's something that's been passed down from generation to generation from the beginning of time. It has this certain antiquity about it, this connection with the past. And just maybe if the Colossians are humble enough, uh, the false teachers just might let them in on the secret, this secret knowledge that that only they have. In verse 22, Paul refers to this idea of human traditions again. And both these verses are alluding to Isaiah chapter 29. You can write down the reference if you like, Isaiah 29 uh, verse 13. Isaiah 29 verse 13, God says... Uh, these people come near to me with their mouth, and they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely, this is, the, this is the quote, the illusion. their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Not on the word of God, but on human traditions that have been handed down from generation to generation. So Paul's linking uh, the human traditions of these false teachers with false worship. He's saying these guys are promoting idolatry. Because even if they profess to be Christians, which they probably are, the reality is they're just giving Christ lip service, Paul says. Sure, there's a bit of wisdom to be found in Christ, but not so much as our secret wisdom, our special knowledge. Knowing Christ isn't enough, they're saying. In fact, Paul says their teaching is so far from Christ that notice the next phrase, it depends on the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That's another way of speaking uh, about demonic forces, powerful evil forces that are alive and well in the world. So Paul's saying, yes, sure, this might seem attractive, it might seem powerful. It's not that the power doesn't come from God, it comes from these demons, Paul says. So don't be taken captive, Paul says. Don't be enslaved by this teaching, because even though it seems attractive, the reality is it's hollow and deceptive. Don't be dragged away from the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Christ is enough, Paul said. So, in verses 9 to 15, Paul kind of presses pause on his warnings and he does all he can to draw the Colossians back to Christ. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. First, in verses 9 and 10, uh, he calls them to, again, to embrace the reality of their fullness in Christ. Have a look there. He says, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Why is it important not to be dragged away from Christ? Because in him, all the fullness of God lives, for goodness sake. Why would you want to go elsewhere? That's what Paul's saying. Literally, uh, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Uh, You might remember Paul already mentioned this back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 19, uh, he said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. And once again, like, like the reference to human traditions in verse 8, uh, these verses are about uh, God dwelling in Christ uh, link us to worship. They link us to the idea of the temple. Uh, both of these verses allude to Psalm 68, verse 16. Once again, write it down, Psalm 68, verse 16. Uh, in that verse, God says uh, that he was pleased to dwell in, in the temple in Jerusalem. Exactly the same wording. The only other time in the whole Bible where this wording is used, Paul uses it twice in Colossians, because he's wanting to make the point that in Christ, we, we don't just have some good teacher or, or someone who's a bit of a guru or someone who's a little bit godlike. No, we have the essence of God himself in human form. That's what he's saying. That's the, the radical claim of Christianity. Just as God was pleased to dwell in the temple so that his people can see and experience the fullness of his glory, so also he's pleased to dwell in Christ, Paul says, either right, the ultimate temple that, we might, that his people might see and experience the fullness of his glory. So Paul says that by God's grace we have been brought to fullness. We've been brought to fullness because we've been brought to Christ. So don't get sucked in, he says, by some hollow and deceptive teaching. Instead, embrace the reality of your fullness in Christ. And remember the reasons for your fullness in Christ. Right? How is it that, that we've been brought uh, to this fullness in Christ? Well, first, verses 11 and 12, uh, it's because of our fellowship with Christ. We've been brought to him and we've been united with him. Look in verse 11, he's, uh, he says, "...in him uh, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands." Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Or literally, uh, with, with the circumcision of Christ, really. That's probably better at the end of verse 11. Anyway, uh, having uh, being buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Right, so the key idea here is union with Christ, being in Christ, having fellowship with Christ. Right? And Paul says, being in Christ, uh, we've died with Christ. Right, so that, that's what all that talk of circumcision is about. Right? Circumcision is not normally used in this way in the Bible, but here it's being used uh, as a really graphic picture of Christ's death. Well, the point being that on the cross Christ's body of flesh was literally circumcised right it was cut away it was stripped that's the point uh, so also paul says uh, if you're a Christian who's in Christ uh, uh, you have experienced a circumcision a kind of circumcision right not thankfully not a, a physical circumcision right but a spiritual circumcision right one that paul says was not performed by human hands you see a spiritual circumcision. Right? It's referring to the fact that, that when we put our faith in Christ and we're united with him, uh, our old fleshly life, just as Christ's body of flesh was cut, our old fleshly life is cut away uh, such uh, it's circumcised. Right, It dies with Christ. And not only, Paul says, did it die with Christ, uh, it was buried with Christ. Baptism being the outward kind of physical sign of that. This is heavy heavy territory, right? But di- union with Christ, died with him, buried with him. And spiritually speaking, we're raised with him, Paul says, to live a new life. So now with your old sinful life, dead and buried with Christ, uh, because of your fellowship with him, why on earth would you go and unite yourself to some other God? That's what Paul's saying. Why would you go to some other temple why well, would you think that you need something more when you have being brought to this incredible freedom in Christ? Which is where he goes to in verse 13. The freedom that they have in Christ. And that they've been freed from death in Christ. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision, right? They've been circumcised, but previously they were in the uncircumcision of their flesh. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Right? Christ is the source of all life apart from Him. Uh, spiritually speaking, we're dead. Physically, we're destined to die. Uh, and yet in being united with Christ, God has made us alive with Him. We share in the power of His resurrection. We are freed from death. Uh, and we're freed from death uh, because we're also freed from the power of sin. Right? It's sin that brings death. So look from the end of verse 13. God forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, uh, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So Paul says, God forgave us all of our sins. Uh, of course, God didn't just forgive us. Right? That's a bit of a common misnomer today. Talking to, I was talking to someone the other day, and, and oh, I'm not a Christian, but uh, sure, I see. No, I'm not perfect, but but God will forgive me, right? Because that's that's what a loving God does, isn't it? Oh, because a loving God is also good. A loving God is also just. A loving God is also righteous. So where there is sin, it must be punished. Where there are debts they must be paid. So Paul says that God cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. You might remember Jesus summarised God's law, right? Paul's talking about legal indebtedness. Jesus summarised God's law as being loving God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbours as ourselves, right? Our problem is that we repeatedly fail when it comes to that law. We give the love of our hearts to other people and and things rather than to God. So over time, uh, we've accumulated this this massive spiritual debt to God. Uh, And God's got a record of that, uh, and it's in what Paul calls uh, his charge of legal indebtedness. It'd be like if you go to the letterbox one day, if anyone does that anymore, uh, and you get out a penalty notice which says, these are the debts that you owe God. But in the same breath, Paul says that God has cancelled our debts. Right, so you get the penalty notice, but it says your debts have been paid in full. This is what you owe, but it's been paid in full. right? And Paul says God has done that, he's cancelled our debts by nailing it to the cross. Right, this is this fellowship with Christ idea again. right? In fellowship with Christ, in his death on the cross, uh, uh, our spiritual debts have been paid in full. We, we died with him paying off all the debts that we owe God. So God can forgive our sins absolutely justly because in Christ he paid the penalty for our sins. But not just the penalty, he broke the power of our sins. That verse 15. Look in verse 15, Paul says, "...and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross." Right? In his death on the cross... Paul says that Christ disarmed Satan and every evil power and authority. He took away from them the only weapon that they really have against us, which is sin that has not been punished. That's their only real weapon in light of eternity. Right, so Christ took that away from them at the cross. So, so, so the moment when Satan thought he was making a public spectacle of Christ, right, triumphing over him by the cross, uh, was the moment when Christ was making a public spectacle of him, Paul says. Right, triumphing over him by the cross. So that's Paul's big way of saying, don't get sucked in by this Gnosticism stuff. I don't be enslaved to this. Right? If you've got fullness in Christ, don't go back to something that's hollow and empty. You're free in Christ. Right? Don't be taken captive by this hollow and deceptive philosophy. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, we'll be much briefer from now on, uh, uh, Paul's second warning, it's about legalism. Uh, therefore, he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So th- this false teaching obviously has a, a bit of a legalistic edge. Right? They're telling the Colossians that if they want to experience, I mean, sure, they're going okay, right? but if they want real spiritual fullness, uh, they have to observe a particular diet and particular days. So They've got to take those things seriously. Now, in the Old Testament, you might remember that God did give his people a pretty a particular sort of diet. Right? He said that some foods were clean and some were unclean. Right? But, of course, God's main purpose with that diet was not that he really didn't like bacon or shrimp. Right? His purpose was to give his people an everyday reminder of just how unclean they were on the inside, right? that their hearts were unclean. So if they wanted to enter into his presence, they had to be cleansed of their sins. So that was the purpose of those, uh, which is why in Mark 7, Jesus says that for his people, every food is clean. Thankfully, bacon, wonderful. All right. Every food is clean because, as was always the case, our problem, Jesus says, is not with the food going into our stomachs, but with the uncleanness coming out of our hearts. What? And we've already seen in the verses we just looked at, verses 9 to 15, that in being united with Christ, the problem of our unclean hearts has been dealt with. Our unclean hearts have been cut away. They've been circumcised. So the Bible can talk about our need for a circumcised heart, a purified heart, a cleansed heart. And Paul's just finished saying that in Christ that's been fully achieved. So he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Those were just shadows pointing to Christ, the one who actually is able to cleanse us fully once and for all from our sins that we might enter the presence of God. And don't let anyone judge you with regard to religious days. Specifically, he talks about these religious festivals, new moons and Sabbaths. And throughout the Old Testament, these three types of days, they're grouped together. Sometimes they're grouped together in the context of true worship of God. Once again, we're on the worship thing. But often they're linked together in the context of false worship again. So in Isaiah uh, chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, God says, uh, chapter 1, 13 and 14, New moons, sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, God says. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. That's Strong. God's saying that the, the uh, Israel's observance of these religious days is false worship. It's idolatrous right? because they care more about the days. They're more enam- enamored with the days than they are with him. That's the problem. I wonder if you imagine going for a walk on a sunny day, going for a walk perhaps with your husband or wife, uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, special friend, sunny day. Uh, but instead of being focused on them, uh, all you can think about is their shadow. You know, what a wonderful shadow. He's just such a beautiful shadow. I'm just so captivated with the shadow. I mean, that's ludicrous, isn't it? But Paul says that's exactly what these false teachers are doing. They're captivated with shadows when the substance has come in Christ. Why would you do that? Don't get sucked into being legalistic about days or diets or anything else, really. And that has to be said because there is a real appeal to legalism. We love having a set of rules that we can follow uh, because it gives us a sense of control and it gives us something that we can be proud of. Uh, Of course, there's also a a very ugly side to legalism, isn't there? Uh, Whatever rules you set up, uh, you'll either uh, become a proud and judgmental person because you're just so brilliant at following the rules. Uh, Or you'll become a very discouraged and depressed person because you continually fail at following the rules. Uh, So Paul says, don't get sucked in by legalism. It's just not worth it. Right? Stick fast with Christ. Uh, And don't be sucked in by mysticism. I think this will become clear what mysticism is. Verses 18 and 19. I do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels uh, disqualify you Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. Uh, They're puffed up with idle notions about their unspiritual mind. Uh, Mysticism is really the, the pursuit of a particular spiritual experience. Uh, and, and of course it's not inherently bad right? but particularly I've just said I'm encouraging you guys to pursue a deeper experience of knowing Christ that's not a bad thing but but this mysticism is not focused on knowing Christ more well, it's hard to, to put together the details of, of what exactly this spiritual experience is but uh, you see there there's references to false humility and worship of angels I think the false teachers are saying something like this right? they're saying you know We're not so arrogant to think that we can go all the way to worshipping God. False humility. We're not so arrogant to think that we could approach God. We're just starting with these angels, you see. We're starting with these angels. And, and, and let us tell you uh, about these uh, amazing spiritual experiences we are having uh, worshipping these angels. Right? With our ancient wisdom that's been passed down from generation to generation, our, our rigorous diet, our, our special days. It's got to happen on a special day. Uh, we've been finding ourselves uh, transported into a heavenly temple where we actually worship these angels. That, that's the kind of thing that's going on. I mean, who wouldn't want to miss, uh, who would want to miss out on that kind of opportunity? A great, a wonderful spiritual experience. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Inner Ring. You should uh, Google it, you know, The Inner Ring. Not now, but at some point. The Inner Ring, uh, he says this, he says, I believe that in all people's lives uh, at certain periods, and in many people's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, One of the most dominant elements, he says, is our desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside. Whether this dominates our lives, to be someone who's on the inside and we're terrified of missing out. That's the fear that these false teachers are playing on in Colossae. You don't want to miss out, do you? Like, we've got this special knowledge, these wonderful experiences. Paul says, uh, it's them that's missing out, doesn't he? Look what he says. He says, they're disconnecting themselves from Christ, the head, right? the source, the head, right? It's a, the source of life. That's where you get nourished. It's a source of direction. That's how you know where you're going. He says, that it's them they're missing out. They're, they're all over the place. It's like they don't even have a head. They're, they're impoverished because they're not being nourished by the source of all life. It's them that are missing out. So let them have their worship of angels. Let them have it, he says. You could say, let them have their psychics or their ouija boards or their tarot cards or their star signs or any other pursuit of spiritual experience that our culture is obsessed with and that we might be tempted to explore. Let them have those things because in Christ we've got the fullness of God. That's what Paul saying. And in verses 20 to 23, he gives his final warning. It's about aestheticism. Uh, since you died, Paul says, with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, uh, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Are uh, These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Uh, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So uh, aestheticism, I- the basic idea of aestheticism, uh, is that spiritual life and fullness is to be found in a life of extreme self-discipline. You know, you beat yourself, you starve yourself, you deprive yourself uh, of all sorts of pleasures in this world, sex, marriage, particular foods and drinks, for example. But And there's real appeal in aestheticism, I think. That, that's one of the reasons why Buddhism is so popular. Well, let's detach ourselves from the passions and pleasures of this world. Right? It gets some real traction. It's why the monastic movement lasted for so long. Right, but Because we love the idea that we can earn our way to spiritual life and fullness through our own self-discipline. Right? We love that. It, it pushes all our buttons. Right, But Paul says we've died to that way of living. We've died to that way of relating to God. We don't find life and fullness by depending on ourselves and our works, but by depending on Christ and His work. So, Paul's purpose in this passage is really to, to move us to embrace and explore. And with all the language of worship, his purpose is to, is to move us to delight in the fullness that we have in Christ, to enjoy it, and to remind us that, that no matter how long we've lived as a Christian or how much we've grown as a Christian, uh, Christ can always fill us up, even to the point of overflowing. I right, to this overflowing sense of His glory and His love and His beauty. So that's where I've got this, you know, my water play exercise over here. I just take that off. All oh, my props man's here. So, um, so if, for example, I was to take this communion cup, right? Let's say uh, this water uh, represents the vast ocean of the fullness of Christ. Right, and I'll take this communion cup. Uh, this is a new Christian, a baby Christian, who's uh, going they're in Christ by faith. Now let's see if Christ is sufficient to fill up the new Christian. Well, it looks like he is. Right? Christ is enough. This is the fullness of Christ. Right? He's enough to fill up a new Christian. Even to the point of overflowing. I don't want to make too much of a mess, but it would overflow. Right? If I tried to pour all of that into a communion cup. And let's say this is a Christian uh, who's uh, grown a bit. Well, you've been a Christian for a few years, and you're just starting to think, look, maybe I should get into some, uh, pursue this mysticism a bit. Maybe I need a little bit, a bit more uh, aestheticism, a bit more self-discipline. I can beat myself up a bit. That'll get rid of my sin. Well, this is someone who's been a Christian for a little while. Let's see if the fullness of Christ is enough. Uh, I'm thinking is, I'll see if I can uh, tip a little bit more in. Yes. And so the fullness of Christ is enough. Even for a Christian who's been around for a little while, like the Colossians. They've been Christians for maybe eight or ten years. The fullness of Christ was enough for them, Paul's saying. Right? Uh, There's still lots of water here, right? Uh, And this is someone who's been a Christian for a very long time. Right? They're a very mature Christian. Let's see once again if the fullness of Christ is enough. Yes, the fullness of Christ is enough is enough even for someone who's been a Christian for a very long time. And there's still plenty to explore. That's the point. It's like me on the beach with the hole that I've dug. Right? Well, that hole is nothing compared to the vastness of the southern ocean that's coming in. I think oh, maybe maybe I need something extra to fill up the hole. No, you've got the ocean for goodness sake. Right? You've got the fullness of Christ, Paul's saying. You're just a little communion cup. What do you think? You need something else. And so Paul's purpose in this passage is to move us, to, to just keep exploring the fullness we have in Christ, to embrace it all the more as we live with Christ Jesus as Lord. You see, as we're rooted and built up in Christ, as we're overflowing in thanks. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that this day, Uh, By the power of your spirit, you might open our eyes afresh to see the uh, the great spiritual fullness that you've brought us to in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to delight in that, uh, to give ourselves afresh to knowing him more. Uh, Please, Father, uh, do this work in our hearts. Uh, Please protect us from uh, anything that might distract us from the fullness, uh, that might drag us away from Christ. Uh, Help us to cling to him uh, as he clings to us.